0: Jonathan, I'm going to use this one instead. Uh, Before we get to the message proper, I wanted to uh, uh, congratulate Kent Vincent on his 70th birthday. asked Kent last night, uh, when is that? He said, I think it's Tuesday. <laughs> they say the memory goes first, don't they? Yep. <laughs> Mine's not, not far behind. I realized I've known um, Kent and the Vincent family more years than I haven't. And uh, Kent's not only had a profound effect on uh, this church and the folks in it, but really citywide, statewide, his, his influence on uh, folks uh, all over the state at least has been uh, signal, uh, important, significant, and long. Uh, Steve Eilif was talking about Kent's investment uh, last night as a pioneer, and he was certainly a pioneer. For us, that's, uh, Kent's not that many years older than me, I think less than four, uh, but he was miles ahead as far as the direction and path of life and the example he was setting for others. So definitely appreciate Kent, and wish him the best going forward. Uh, I'm going to introduce a, a short summer series this morning, uh, starting with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. For how many here, is that a memory verse? So if, can you rattle it off? Yeah. Uh, it's an important verse. It's um, it's worth knowing, and its implications are worth following. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God, inspired by God, spoken out, breathed out. It's from God. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It's beneficial. It's worth knowing. You can use it. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God or the boy of God or the girl of God may be complete, adequately prepared for every good work. So all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable, all scripture. So from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it's as if God himself spoke through the prophets. They, they wrote, they heard, but ultimately God says it was as if he himself spoke all the words of scripture. Line and Lamb's statement of belief says the scriptures in their original autographs are the fully inspired word of God without error, absolute in their authority and complete in their provision for godly living. So God takes his word seriously. We want to take his word seriously as well. So here's a couple of the implications. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is profitable. So, For most of us, if we read our Bibles, we have favorite passages. We have texts that speak to us that we particularly like, and maybe ones we've memorized, all of which is good. We should. If we hang out in the scriptures, we're going to have those favorite passages. But here's the flip side of that. We cannot afford to ignore any of God's word, even for our favorites, because if we do, we are devaluing the fact that all scripture is inspired and profitable. It doesn't mean that all scripture will have the same impact for any of us or all of us, but it means we can't afford to neglect any of the Bible because God has taken care to give it to us, to preserve it for us, and he he ladens it with profit that we are without unless we've seen that, unless we've taken that in for ourselves. I was looking through the Lion and Lamb website uh, several months ago, and if you go there and look for past messages, you can look who gave the message, or you can look at the series of the message, but one of the references is a scripture text. So I'm looking for a message on a scripture text. Well, I noticed there were seven books of the Bible in our references that had no messages on them, no messages out of them. And so the summer series is going to be to cover those four books of the Bible. So the first that we'll start with this morning uh, out of the Old Testament is Leviticus, then 1 Chronicles, then Esther, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, and out of the New Testament, Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John. Uh, When the Apostle Paul knew he was seeing a group of elders from Ephesus for the last time, this is out of Acts 20, he told them, Uh, my hands are free of the guilt of all men. Uh, My hands are clean. I'm not guilty before you guys because I didn't fail to declare to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. Anything God gave me to tell you, I gave it to you. And so when we teach here, we want, we want the end. It's not going to happen on one Sunday, but we want the end to be that we have faithfully communicated the whole purpose of the whole counsel of God. And that's why you'll see series, Old Testament, New Testament, you'll see some topical themes, but but the goal is that whatever God has said is profitable and we wanna make sure that we've said something about that, something from that. We need to have a sense of the whole Bible if we're going to have the whole counsel of God. Now, last night, a gentleman asked me what I was teaching this morning. And I said, Leviticus. And he's a Christian. Yes, there's a person here that was there. And I'm not sure how to describe the look on his face. <clears throat> was this surprise? Was this shock? Was this unbelief? What was it? Leviticus. If there's a book in the Bible that Christians like to neglect, r- remain uh, absent from, it's probably Leviticus. And, and it is, guys, it's a strange book, and it's strange for a reason. We'll talk a little bit about that but we're going to start this morning in leviticus and and going forward um, i guess i have two main main themes that i hope come across the the first is this i hope you'll read leviticus i hope you will wade through leviticus you know for many of us uh it's it's a milestone to say we read through the bible we read through the whole bible we read from genesis to Revelation. And, Or maybe we read through the Bible in a year and we're like, wow, you know, that's done. I've done that. But what we really want to do is we want to be in all the Bible, sort of, in the ways we can say this all the time. We don't want to neglect any of it. And so I hope you'll read Leviticus. and I hope part of the fruit of the message this morning is this. It is a strange book and it's different. It's different for a reason. But if we have a few handholds, I think it can give us a way of looking through and of wading through uh, texts that talk uh, for chapters on end about how to offer certain sacrifice, and the lobes of the liver, and the fat of the tail, and on and on, and how to look for skin lesions, and what to do with a house that has some growth on the walls, etc., 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 what's clean and unclean. That there's a lens by which, when I read through, I can say, I think God wants to communicate something to me along these lines. I'm not lost in the woods. I'm on a path, and I'm going through the book. And I have some key markers or some key lenses by which I can make sense of a book that otherwise seems quite strange indeed. (coughs) Excuse me. So that's my hope. So it's 27 chapters long, third book of the Bible, most of the Old Testament books, uh, especially the, the Torah, the law, they got their names from the first words of the book. And that's not true of Leviticus. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Greek version uh, put Levi- of the Levites as the title Leviticus because it does say so much about what the priests were to do, not only how they were initiated into their priesthood, but what they were to do about sacrifices, etc. cetera. So it was a book particularly apt, for the priesthood. Certainly not um, separately. It's profitable for all, but it gave them lots of specific instructions. Here's something that I think makes it easier, at least as we start. Most people are less afraid of the book of Exodus. And if you read Exodus, you know, 1 through 20, you're in an exciting narrative. And you get to 20 and the the law starts being given, but you get through the second half of Exodus and it's really about uh, God's directions for setting up the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle was a a tent, basically, in an enclosure, and it had a holy place, and it had the holy of holies, and it had some furniture, and it had the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a restricted place for Israel to meet with God through the priesthood to meet with, with God. But God said, this is the way I want you to make it, and this is where I will meet with you And then when we start at the end of Exodus, God comes down and he manifests his presence at that tabernacle. The people can see God's there. So this was where I'm going to meet with you. Exodus, the the tabernacle is where I'll meet with you. When we get into Leviticus, it's basically seamless and it's how I will meet with you. So we're going to meet here and this is the manner in which we are going to interact with each other. That's Leviticus. So the narrative just continues right on. And apparently all the words of Leviticus were given in about a one-month period. And you can see this when you compare the Exodus 40, verse 1, Leviticus 1, 1, and Numbers 1, 1. So God tells them how we're going to meet. Let me give you just a quick run-through of some of the things Leviticus covers. Leviticus told the priests what to sacrifice. In fact, that's how it opens. When and how often it told individuals what to take to the priest for their offerings related to different kinds of sin and ritual uncleanness Leviticus told God's people what they could eat what they couldn't what they could wear and what they couldn't they were to consider some things clean and other things unclean sometimes because of morality other times as symbolic of God's holiness. Uh, They talked about things like leprosy, what was a safe house to live in, what was a safe person to be around based on a disease that they might communicate to others. Some of the laws had the effect of keeping Jewish people separated from the Gentiles so they could remain God's unique people. So on some of those, you say that's just weird because there's no obvious morality to it. But if you were a Jew, friends, part of the reason the Jews were able, and this is no small thing, they've not been lost, Jews have not been lost in the cultures of the world since Abraham. And part of the big reason for that is the law. It was the first five books of the Bible, and many of these laws kept them separate historically and have kept them separate to this day. In fact, I kid you not, last night in this conversation, we're in a house, and I'm told there used to be two kitchens here. There was a main kitchen, I looked this up this morning, and a smaller kitchen. And it seemed odd. And I said, you know, I've noticed in some homes I've been in that same arrangement. And uh, they were almost always for this reason. It was a Jewish household. And the household was following the command to make sure that no milk products came in contact with meat products. Do you remember the crazy that a kid shall not be boiled in its mother's milk? Well, that was that lived out. So there are elements of the law that we say, well, why would God make them do that? Well, some of it was just to make sure they stayed separate from the nations. If they didn't stay separate, they'd be lost as God's covenant people. So some of them, some of those odd ones, it made them distinct. And that was the point. A big one that I think, and by the way, what you'll see, my hope is this morning you'll see Leviticus is On one hand, it's a standalone book, but what you'll see is Leviticus foreshadows all kinds of topics and themes that you'll see, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New. It's relevant. It comes up again and again and again. One of the ways it comes up is in the feasts that are listed in Leviticus. You know There were seven national feasts that God commanded the Jews. And what do we find in Jesus' incarnation in his first coming? We see that Jesus fulfilled the four spring feasts they are laid out in Leviticus. So you remember Jesus becomes the Passover. He's sacrificed on Passover. His body lays uncorrupted during a part of the feast, the week of unleavened bread. He rises on the feast of first fruits. And as he promised he would, when he went to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit on the feast of Pentecost. And so we look back and we see very clearly, Jesus was the fulfillment of the feasts of the Jews, those four spring feasts. And what do we infer about the fall feasts? We infer that Jesus' second coming will fulfill the fall feasts. And how do the fall feasts end? They end on the Feast of Tabernacles. And what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles? The people all in mass in Jerusalem, and they make these temporary shelters like their forebears lived in in the wilderness wanderings, and they meet with God for a week. And friends, what do you think Tabernacles foreshadows? If you don't know, we'll read that at the end of of this morning's message. So Leviticus is relevant, and it speaks to all kinds of themes, not only that were particularly true for the Jews in their day, but remain true for us as well. Leviticus laid out some of the ways God required his holy people to treat each other. How will you treat each other? You're my people. What does that require of you towards each other? Uh, Like Deuteronomy, Leviticus includes a passage in which God says if you display covenant faithfulness, you will be singularly blessed. And if you do not display covenant faithfulness, it will be to your pain. It will be a painful lesson indeed. Uh, Knowing something about the book of Leviticus uh, gives us a background. If you read the book of Hebrews and you don't know anything about Leviticus, it's a very, very strange book. But if you have a background and it's talking about Jesus as the new high priest, Jesus as the perfect offering, It's against the background of the offerings of Leviticus. In fact, there's some inferences there for us as well. So, today, these are the four big rocks. There's two corollaries. And these are the lenses by which I hope, when you read Leviticus, as I know you will, that you can say this is a framework to see some of these things that otherwise appear strange. The first is this God is holy. If there's one theme of the book of Leviticus, it's that God is holy. The corollary is we must be holy. That's what he told Israel. That's what he tells us today. God is holy. The corollary is God's people are called to be holy. That's the first two lenses, if you will. The second are these. Leviticus is a call to love God with who we are and what we do. Leviticus is a call to love God, and Leviticus is a call to love our neighbor. So Leviticus is a call that says God is holy, we must be holy Leviticus tells us this is how we show God love, and this is how we display love to our neighbors. It's a big deal. So you can open your books. We're going to skip around quite a bit. I suppose we'll land in a couple of passages, at least briefly. Excuse me. My allergies are bad. and I'm going to probably hack and cough through this message this morning, so apologies for that. The very strangeness of the book comes because of its theme, that God is holy. And guys, God is holy uh, for sinful people is a difficult concept to get a hold of. Even if we say what it, it's defined by, what it means, it doesn't mean that we get what it looks like. It doesn't mean that we somehow now understand and know. So on one hand, we say in, in Hebrew, it's kadosh, God is holy, kadosh, 470 times in scripture. It means apartness or sacredness, Some A synonym is unique. Well, God is, he is ultimately unique. He is ultimately sacred. There's nothing and no one like him. Remember that before God, there's nothing and no one. Everything comes from God. God is absolutely unique because there's nothing and no one like him. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's not only creator and sustainer, but he is all he should be and nothing he shouldn't be all the time. So when God describes himself more than any other term in Scripture, God is holy. And you remember some of the phrases, the themes, the repeats in Scripture? When someone sees God, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. It's as if you can't say it often enough. He's absolutely unique. He's absolutely perfect. That's who God is. That's what he's like. And that's the key theme of Leviticus. Listen to a few of the verses. I'll run through these, and these are on your study sheet. From Leviticus 11, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, kadosh, make yourselves holy, therefore, and be holy, kadosh, for I am holy. Leviticus 19, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Chapter 20, consecrate yourselves, therefore, set yourselves apart And be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who sets you apart. Chapter 20, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I'm holy, and the implications come to us from that. I'm holy, so you be holy. Psalm 5, verse 4 says this, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell in with you. You know, we live in a time in which God is very patient. He's very merciful. He's very gracious. And God endures sin now. And God's been enduring sin since the fall in the garden. But God will not endure sin ultimately. And friends, just like leprosy was quarantined in Leviticus, or just like the house that had a communicable disease was to be set apart, demolished so that it couldn't affect others. Sin and sinners will ultimately be quarantined by God. He will not abide them. He will not endure them. Sin and sinners will be quarantined. That's as the Bible winds down the second death, that eternal separation from God, so that in his new tabernacle where he dwells with men, in the new heaven, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, there's nothing evil, there's nothing wicked, it's not present. That theme comes right out of Leviticus. God who is holy must be treated as holy by his people. Listen to this from Leviticus 10. Now, this is the kind of story that gets kids' attention. And maybe if you've read Leviticus, you remember this story. So the priesthood is instituted in chapter 8. And you get to chapter 10, and you remember Aaron's the high priest, and his sons are the priests after him. And you're just two chapters into their ordination, and two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they go to present an offering of incense before God. And listen to what the story says. Each took his censer, a, a, a bronze tray with coals and incense on it, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What's the unauthorized fire? Don't know. There's some inferences in the passage that follows, but it's absolutely not clear what that looked like. But they approached God on their own terms. He had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, and remember the priests are those closest to God's presence in the tabernacle, I will be sanctified. I will be treated as holy before all the people. I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So imagine God's just instituted the covenant, he's instituted the priesthood, and these two guys come before God and they say, God, we're coming to you on our terms. And God says, No, you're not. And he consumes them in fire in that moment. And this was an exclamation point for the nation to say, I am holy. And you will come to me the way I determine, not on your own terms. I am holy, and that has requirements for you. Now, there's a very similar story in Acts 5. It's almost identical. So Nadab and Abihu are coming to God on their terms. They're making an offering, but not the way God said. And in Acts 5, what do you have? You have a husband and wife team and Ananias and Sapphira presenting an offering to God through the apostles. They've sold a piece of land and they come to Peter and they say, here's all the money of the sale of the land. Now, it wasn't all the money of the sale of the land. And Peter said, we don't care how much of the sale you give or don't give, but they lied. They came and they said, here's all the money, but they were lying because it wasn't all the money. And Peter says, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. You've come to God with this offering on your own terms. And God says, I'm not having it this way. He put an exclamation point in the early church that God is holy and he will be treated holy by his people. And Ananias and Sapphira were both slain by God that day. Leviticus 10 and Acts 5. Guys, it's the same theme. God's holy, and he says, I require that you approach me my way on my terms, not your way and your terms. <laughs> when God appears to humans in scripture, the typical response is the awesome glory of his holiness, they just fall out. And it doesn't matter how singularly holy they are as humans, they can't stand in God's holy presence. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is out of Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of God. And it's unlike the other visions you'd see of God in other portions of Scripture, thinking especially of Revelation 4 and 5. But in this vision, Daniel sees God sitting on a throne. Well, the throne is fire. And what's coming from the throne is a river of fire. And in Scripture, fire is this purifying effect. You know, the sacrifices are made in fire to God. Fire seen as this purifying effect. And what do you see? It's as if God says, I am holy, my throne is holy, and all that I do, all that proceeds from me is holy. Well, that's the theme of Leviticus. God is holy, and the implications for us are profound and many. God is holy, he's perfect in all he is, all he does, and his holiness determines how we interact with him. So, God's holy, big lens. Second one is, be holy. God who is holy calls those in relationship with him to be holy as well, and <clears throat> this is this is a lesson. Um, I think that for the church in the West today, continues to be one of those things that um, is uh, most timely. Because uh, surveys generally show that evangelical Christians, so evangelical defined. People who believe the Bible is God's word—excuse <coughs> me—that that there must be a new birth, that we need to be reborn through faith in Christ, that there's an eternity ahead, heaven and hell—the surveys routinely show that the lifestyles of those people who hold those beliefs are have it not have a dime's worth of difference between people who profess no such thing. Sexual immorality, uh, the way we use our money, the way we treat other people—there's almost not a dime's worth of difference. So on this whole theme of God calls his people to be holy because he's holy, this is, this is not a message locked up 2,000 years ago in Leviticus. This is a message for the church today. God is holy, and he calls us to be holy. So in Leviticus, you've got some of the requirements God has. Call the people from something. They call them out of something, a lifestyle. And other, other requirements call them to something, And that's the same for us today. God will tell us, hey, I want you to get out of certain lifestyles or ways of doing life, and I want you to start doing other things. So, for instance, the sacrifices God requires in Leviticus separates them from the guilt of sin. We'll talk more about this in a minute, from the guilt of sin. Prohibitions on food separate them from the Gentiles. Can't eat with the Gentiles. They're unclean. What they're doing is unclean to us as Jews. Prohibitions on the means and places of worship were meant to separate them from idolatry. God said, you must worship me in this manner, in this place, this way. That would keep them from idolatry. Remember, that was a key theme in the Old Testament. If you abide with the people of the land, there will be thorns in your sides and you will capitulate to idolatry. You will become like them. They won't become like you. The festivals God establishes separates them to God in times of worship. So not so much from, though they're leaving their normal place of home and work, but it's to God and it's with each other. The use of clean and unclean regulations uniquely separated them to God. That has implications in the lifestyle of Christians. And the requirements and treatment of each other separated them to God as a unified people. They had responsibilities to each other. God said, this is the way you must treat each other, interact with each other. So on this call, so, so God says, I'm holy, so you've got to be holy. So that first corollary, uh, God's holy, treat him as holy. The second that comes from it, so you be holy. Where does that start? Well, in Leviticus, it starts right out of the shoe. The very first verses are about the way that they would come to God on God's terms. And it has to do with the whole burnt offering. So... <clears throat> Remember that God sovereignly chose Abraham and his heirs. But you remember in Deuteronomy, we've had several lessons out of Deuteronomy. God makes sure the Jews know you're not all that. I didn't choose you because you were so numerous or so powerful or so smart or so accomplished. It it didn't have to do with you. It had to do with me. I chose you out of the rest of the world for myself. The Jews were as sinful friends as anybody else. And in fact, when you read through their histories in Kings and Chronicles, you see they're as bad as and sometimes worse than the pagan nations around them. So the first thing that was important for them, if they were going to be in relationship with the holy God, was they had to become holy. And how do the unholy become holy? That's sacrifice, and that's where Leviticus starts. So this is starting in Leviticus 1, verse 3. The initial step of holiness is atonement of sin. It's God saying, we've got to do something about your sin or we can't even begin this relationship, this unique relationship he intends. So bear with me. And by the way, I'm given this in, in very brief snippets. So when you read this, these are lengthier passages and the lenses are meant to help you get through, okay? Okay. So Leviticus 1, starting in verse 3, If his offering, he's coming to God, the offerer, the worshiper, is coming before God. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, so from the cattle, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. See this in your mind's eye, too. I'm going to present myself before God. I'm taking this cow or this calf, and I'm, and I'm leading it up to that tent that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you're going to get variations on this theme through several chapters. So what's the deal? How does this How does this tie in with God's holy and we must be holy? Verse three, why is he bringing a bull that's going to be sacrificed? Verse three, that he may be accepted. The offer does not come to God on his own terms. He needs a substitute to be accepted. He is unacceptable on his own terms. Verse four, excuse me, to make atonement for him. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. <clears throat> to make atonement for him, atonement is kaffar, it's a ransom. 49 times in Leviticus, 102 times total in the Old Testament. Here's the thought. The offer the worshiper is coming before God. He can't come on his own merit. He can't come on his own terms. He has to come with a sacrifice, a substitute by which he will be accepted. But if there's no substitute, and remember the offering is this perfect unblemished offering, he can't be acceptable before God. Leviticus (coughs) 17.11 defines this. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So if you cut us, we bleed, right? And if we bleed unhindered, we bleed out and we die. So Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you, Kath. Do you have a cough drop? Or I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood, by reason of the life—excuse me—that makes atonement. The very first thing in Leviticus is you don't stand before a holy God in your own merit or on your own terms. You must come with a sacrifice that's adequate to atone for, to ransom you. For your sins, there must be a death. A substitute must take your place or your soul will die. That, that lays the foundation of all that follows in Leviticus. So, <clears throat> you know that in Leviticus, we, there's the, the priesthood and the offerings are instituted. And you remember the Jewish day began the same way? A lamb was offered. The Jewish day ended the same way. A lamb was offered. In fact, Hebrews talks about this quite a bit. Why are there all these sacrifices? Why is there a sacrifice every morning and every evening? And why every time that I commit this <coughs> particular kind? I think this is the worst I've ever been. Sorry. <coughs> What's the deal with all these bloody sacrifices? It's to cover sin. It's to It's to ransom. <coughs> It's to atone, it's to cover over their sins so that they can come into God's holy presence. The bloody sacrifices morning and evening, feasts, sacrifices made after sin was committed, all reminded the unholy sinner that the only manner by which they could be restored to God to have this relationship, to be acceptable to a holy God, was if a ransom could be paid and the ransom had to be in blood, it had to be the life Of another, not just any other, a perfect substitute. And while Leviticus is filled with sacrifices of animals, every one of those sacrifices ultimately pointed to Christ as the perfect Lamb of God. So when we read those sacrifices in Leviticus, we are reading the foreshadowing of Christ and his offering. And I know this because Hebrews tells me that. So in Hebrews 10, when I read this, remember. Uh, Jesus, Jesus uh, incarnation and his death and resurrection, guys, that's the center of the cosmos. It's the center of history. It's the center of everything God's done. So when God forgave a Jew under the Old Testament, it was because Christ would come and die for their sins. So Hebrews makes clear those animal sacrifices, they couldn't do it. They never did it. And that's why they kept being repeated was a constant reminder, sin's not atoned for, the ransom hasn't been adequately paid. But they were this temporary way of God saying, here's a picture that the ultimate ransom, the ultimate perfect sacrifice will come one day, and these sacrifices point to it. Guys, by the way, you know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? In large part, mostly, we're looking back, we're remembering what Christ did on the cross, the sacrifice, the ransom the atonement for our sins. And to Susan's message, Zephaniah 3, by the way, is one of the loveliest passages in all the Bible on God's heart towards his children. We're looking back and Jesus is saying, I've loved you this much to make you my own. We're looking back at the ultimate atonement, the ransom paid. So all of those sacrifices, when you read through Leviticus or any other portion of the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Christ. And Christ is that sacrifice by whom and only by whom you and I can stand holy before a holy God. This is why we tell people, this born-again stuff, this is life and death forever. This is all that matters at the end of the day. Have I come to saving faith in Christ? You know, we said baptism doesn't save us. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Christ is the ransom. And all those sacrifices pointed to Christ. One day he would come. And you get in John 1, and what does John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, say when he sees Jesus? By which, by the way, this church derives half of its name. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All those (laughs) sins forgiven by God in the Old Testament were predicated on the fact that Jesus would be the bull. He would be the lamb. He would be the goat. He would be the doves that were sacrificed so that the offerer could come before God. That's Leviticus. But that was all telling us Christ is going to come. That's what he'll do. Uh, Hebrews 10 says that, by the way, quoting Psalm 40. Uh, listen to this also from 1 Timothy 2. Guys, Leviticus is so full of good things that I'm going to have to cut my message short just not to burn the rest of your day. But I hope you get a taste. Just enough. That thought about uh, Jesus as the ransom. You know, ransom is kind of an odd thing. And by the way, there's weird theology that you'll read. Uh, uh, Jesus paid a ransom to Satan. No, he didn't. Satan had nothing to do with this. But the ransom... Think of the slave market. You know, if I wanted to redeem somebody from the slave market, think of the Old Testament book of Hosea, what have I got to do? I got to ransom them. I got to pay a fee by which I get them out of slavery. Well, Jesus was our ransom from sin and death and slavery. So we think of sins forgiven, that's good, it's appropriate, it's biblical, but it's also this theme of ransom that he bought us back. And guys, the implications for that, if I bought you out of slavery and you knew it, what would your feelings towards me be? You'd be thankful, wouldn't you? And you'd want to display that thankfulness in the way you live, because I had freed you from slavery. Well, that's what Jesus did for us. So 1 Timothy 2, there's one God. Remember, there's one God. He's holy. And there's only one mediator. There's only one bridge. There's only one mechanism by which unholy people can get to that one holy God, one mediator, uh, the man Christ Jesus. And what did he do? What what did the divine man do? do? Well, he gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices you see in Leviticus. Because that's the case, we're holy in Christ and we're called to live out that perfect holiness day to day in the ways we engage in life. So, so like the offer in Leviticus or like the whole book, we come to God not on our own terms. We come to God through faith in the substitute. He said he would accept us, Ransom paid, atonement made, that's Christ. So, guys, we're not holy if we're not in Christ. We're unholy and we're unclean before a holy and clean God. And he cannot accept that forever. So that's why we say, as evangelicals who believe in the gospel, we want to, we want to communicate the gospel to others because that's how God saves people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God's salvation to all who believe. That's why we share the gospel with others. It's all that matters at the end of the day. But having begun that life of holy living because we've been sanctified by Christ in Christ, we're then called just like the Jews to live out holy living in our day-to-day living. So 1 Peter 1 says this, As obedient uh, children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... You shall be holy for I am holy. Where was that written? Well, that's Leviticus 11.44. You be holy because I'm holy. Peter quotes it. Where is it from? It's from Leviticus. Same thing that applied to the Jews applies to us. When Christians are exhorted in Romans 12.1 to present our bodies a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, what's the imagery for a Jew behind that? It's Leviticus 1. It's the whole burnt offering. So I say... I'm supposed to see myself like that offering that wasn't shared by the priests and the people didn't sit down and eat it. The sacrifice was put on the altar and it was consumed entirely <clears throat> to God. It was God's. And you read Romans 12:1 and you've had justification, you've had all our sin, all of sin, fall short of the glory of God. You got redemption through Christ, you got the implications of that starting in chapter 12 and how does it start out of the gate just like Leviticus 1 see yourself as a whole burnt offering given to God. That you've been made holy in christ positionally and now you're to live that holy life out practically and that's what you get as romans 12 moves on so god says i'm holy you be holy it starts in christ and this meant to be lived out just like the jews were in those commands about how they lived and how they treated each other etc so god says i'm holy you be holy our holiness starts it ends of course with the offering of jesus But it's called to have practical implications for what you and I do and don't do. So understanding that God is holy and that his holiness must be reflected in the way his people interact with him. These are lenses that help us when we're wading through Leviticus, okay? This is our life preserver. We're floating. We're getting through. We have some sense, some comprehension. Guys, I'm going to wind down on point three on your study sheet. And I'll let you look the other verses up later. Matthew 22, remember, the religious leaders were always after Jesus, weren't they? They want to trip him up. They they want to put him down. He's competition for them. One of those occasions in which the Pharisees are trying to get him, they're testing him, they ask him the question, tell a teacher, so this, this hypocritical sense of respect to him, tell us, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So what's the most important commandment, Rabbi Jesus? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now I'll bet you recognize that. Because that's Deuteronomy 6, isn't it? And what have we been reciting after every service on Sunday for a while? We've been reciting Deuteronomy 6. So Jesus simply says, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, and he says this is the most important thing to love God. Now, What's the first responsibility, therefore, that creatures have towards their creator? It's to love him. What's the first responsibility the redeemed have for their redeemer? It's to love him. This is the great command. This is the foremost. No other command is greater than this. What's the glue that binds children of God to their father? It's not duty. It's love. The duty we have towards our fathers is duty born of love. Now, if we say we love God or I love you or you love me, what in the world does that mean? Uh, Don't know much about history, don't know much about biology, but I do know that I love you and I don't know if we could love you too. I can't remember, sorry, it's an old song. Um, What in the world does love look like? What does that look like? And how do we define it? And you know the Greeks have at least four words for love, and they different inferences. But when, when Jesus says the first great command is that we love God, what does it look like? How do you define it? Because Scripture defines it. We're not left on our own on this. Uh, scripture is clear that to love God is to obey Him. To love God is the same as obeying Him. Deuteronomy 11, 13, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord, your God, obey my commandments, love God, uh, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So in Deuteronomy, it's clear God connects. Absolutely. He says to love God is to obey him. Now, guys, talk is cheap. And, you know, some of the things you noticed over time, I let's say I've heard someone, I know them and they they've said these things and I, I say we're on the same page. And then I look at their life, and I realize what they say doesn't line up with what they do. And then I I conclude this. What they say is immaterial. It's what they do that's communicating what they really believe. Well, God says, if you love me, you obey me. And the corollary is, if you don't obey me, you don't love me. Talk is cheap. In the book of Leviticus, God told Israel how to demonstrate love for him. How to demonstrate love for God through obedience. You know, if you're raising children and you tell your child, uh, honey or son or daughter, uh, do this or don't do that, and they say, well, I don't understand, so I'm not going to do it. This misses the point. You don't have to understand, but you should obey because I'm your parent. And I know what I'm asking you to do, and I know why. And so your obedience not only shows respect, but it shows love. We don't always understand why God's telling us to do something or not do something. They certainly didn't either. But all of those were opportunities to say, God, you know best, and I choose to obey you because I love you. I I have the, the love of a child. I have the love of the redeemed. I have the love of a creature for the creator. I'm going to obey you because I love you. Apart from other considerations, Leviticus told God's people how to love him. I always try and make sure I add this. We don't obey God. This has nothing to do with religious observance and hypocrisy. And please remember that the group, the covenant group Jesus interacted with, they were religious. And in their day, as opposed to earlier days in Israel's history, they kept the law. They worked hard at it. But they were hypocrites, and they were not holy before God, and they rejected God the Son in the flesh. Because their obedience, it was formal. You remember what Jesus said? I believe he's quoting out of Isaiah. This people draws near to me with their lips. They're religious. They're showing up on Sunday morning, but their hearts are far from me. Those were the religious people in Jesus' day, friends. Those people exist today. Maybe some of those people are here this morning. I'm religious. I go to church. I'm doing my thing, but I'm presenting myself to God on my terms. It's unholy. So, obedience is the way we demonstrate love to God, not not as religious, but as children who love our Father and our Savior. Uh, What was true under the old covenant? Now, if that sounds hard edged, it gets worse. If I say, if you don't obey God, you don't love Him, it doesn't end in Leviticus. It's only raised, and it's raised by Jesus. I'll just run through these quickly. It's out of John 14, 1 John 5. Jesus says, so this is Jesus. This isn't you. This isn't me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Jesus says he's the example. I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. How does the world know that Jesus loves the Father? Because I do what he says. 1 John 5 3 This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Talk, friends, is cheap. It's cheap. It can be meaningless. It's not so much what we say, though we do want to say the truth, we want to affirm the truth in our words. But if we're not living according to it, we are simply hypocrites. We are not holy. Uh, I I better close here. Let me let me wind down with this. I'll let you guys look up the other ones on loving others. And Leviticus brings this up in spades and it's referenced in the New Testament as well. The book of Leviticus and the lessons in it aren't out of date and they aren't irrelevant. They're timely. They're for you and therefore for me because all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. We love and serve the same God of Leviticus. That same God is equally holy today and our call to holiness in love is not less than that to the Israelites. It's more. I'll just give you a couple of thoughts as you read through this week. I'll check up on you next week. <clears throat> when we read... Of the offerings in Leviticus, we remember that sin brings death, and Jesus is the once for all sacrifice that allows us to be restored in our relationship to the Father. When we read of the deaths of Naab and Abihu, we remind ourselves that our God is a consuming fire. We approach him on his terms. He is not safe. That's out of Hebrews 10 as well. When we read of the priesthood, we remember we have one eternal high priest who represents us today before the Father, Jesus who has brought the blood of the The atoning sacrifice into the holy of holies in heaven and stands there as our advocate today when we sin. And that under our high priest Jesus, we also are a holy priesthood, a royal nation. And we've been commissioned under Jesus as our high priest to offer sacrifices to God, which is the fruit of our lips, declaring his praise and his excellence. When we read the descriptions of clean and unclean, we remind ourselves that God calls us to make distinctions between what honors him and what doesn't, what holy living a holy life looks like, what we can embrace, and what we must reject. When we read the statutes regarding the Jews' treatment of each other, we should remind ourselves of the high call to love, pray for help, support, and fellow believers. And the festivals, closing on this theme, reminds us that God celebrates with his people And his children, and abundantly provides for them, and that Jesus ultimately fills up all the festivals in his own person and work. And we are heading, we are heading to the eternal feast of tabernacles out of Leviticus, referenced in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He's tabernacling with us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, that's Leviticus, tied into the end of the Bible. We are going to the Feast of Tabernacles in, in the new heavens, and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's out of Leviticus. There's, there's a little something, one or two things we can get out of that challenging book. Okay, With that, please rise. We're going to close by reading a short passage out of Leviticus. Read with me. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you and who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord.